Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I welcome Jonathan Santlofer. Jonathan's the author of the memoir, The Widower's Notebook, released this month by Penguin Penguin Books. As well as being an author, Jonathan's also an artist. He's published five novels, including the best-selling The Death Art and the award-winning Anatomy of Fear and numerous short stories. He has been both editor and contributor for six notable anthologies, among them the New York Times bestseller Inherit the Dead, and recently Touchstone Simon & Schuster's It Occurs to Me That I Am America, a collection of original stories and art. He's taught art and writing at Columbia University, Pratt Institute, and the Center for Fiction, where he created Crime Fiction Academy. His artwork is in major public and private collections in the U.S. and abroad. Jonathan's been the recipient of numerous grants and awards, among them two National Endowment for the Arts grants, visiting artist at the American Academy in Rome, and he serves on the board of Yado, one of the oldest arts organizations in the U.S. Welcome, Jonathan. Well, thank you, Cheryl. You know, whenever I hear people uh, <clears throat> say all of those things, I think, who are they talking about? You know? <laughs> I'm not kidding. But. I know what you mean. And, <laughs> and then people say, how do you do all that? And I'm like, well, uh, I don't do it all at the same time. <laughs> that is exactly the answer. It was many years of many things. So, But I thank you for that. And but I but thank none of, for nonetheless, a lot of work, a lot of good, good work. That, ah, that, well, that hope is. so. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. And most... Um, most particularly for this show and also for right now, since it was just released, your memoir, The Widower's Notebook, uh, which I have to tell you, I just appreciated so much uh, for for many reasons. Uh, Maybe the one to start with is just there are not that many, I realized as I was reading, not that many uh, very, very vulnerable books about grief by men. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and I, I thank you uh, for that, for saying that and bringing it up. You know, it's, it's interesting, but I think that in many ways I fell into or was brought up as a very stereotypical Western man. And people can now make, you know, horrible noises in the background. Um, but, you know, this... Um, this thing in my life that happened really opened me up and changed me. And I will say and credit most of the women I know in my life for encouraging me to write this book. I wasn't sure I could. Uh, writer friends, almost all women, though, said to me, you have to write this book because men don't write these sort of books. Um, you know, I don't let me just say I don't think men grieve any differently than women. That would be absurd. But I do think that, you know, the society and the the culture, which, well, personally, I don't think they love hearing about grief or, you know know what I mean? Yeah, I do. (laughs) um, You know, the stereotypes for the way men and women are supposed to grieve are are so absurd, you know? So, so I'm, if, if I can change that gender stereotype in any way, then I'll be happy, you know? Well, it's interesting because uh, you talked a lot in the book, and we will get to, you know, what brought you to write the book in a minute, but just another word on this. Uh, You talked a lot in the book about a pressure to fix things and and make things okay, and I I kind of reviewed the men that I've interviewed on the show in the last five years, and a lot of the books are, I guess I would say, um, I wrote down a word about it, instructive books. <laughs> That's uh, mm. and, and that seemed to fit with what you were saying. Um, well, you know, <laughs> I've, I've had this experience, you know, there's obviously, if you're going to write a book of, 
uh, about grief, you've had a loss usually. Yeah, but um, the yeah. tone of the books is just a little more um, instructive. I, can I say that, well, first of all, um, my book is not a how-to book. I, I wouldn't... No, it isn't. You know, people have been... That's what I'm commenting have, on, actually. The yeah, I mean, yeah. I think that, yes, I was brought up in a very stoic family. I don't think I ever saw either of my parents cry. How about that? Um, and, uh, I, my father was a really tough guy, you know, in many ways. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, think a lot of those things were not, I wouldn't say passed down to me because in fact, I think they softened me inadvertently, but, um, I, I didn't, I'm not an expert. You know, we all become somehow when you have a loss, you, you, you know, you're dropped into this, um, world where you become your own expert on the worst possible thing and you have to figure out how you're going to get out of this darkness and back into the light to be you know um, I don't mean to make that sound corny but but that is kind of the way I felt Um, writing the yeah writing the book was um, very helpful to me it was very painful to me but it was also very helpful to me and uh, we can talk about the way that actually happened, but maybe you want to give a little background or want yeah, me to give what, background. Well, what, I, what I'd like to do is bring joy into our conversation, uh-huh. your wife, because, yeah. of course, <laughs> she's so central to your book and your life. And uh, I just wonder if you'd share, uh, you know, what, what happened that led ultimately, eventually, to your book. Yeah, well, my wife, Joy, um, you know, we met in college in art school. We were art students. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Today's woman faces a stressful world when it comes to staying healthy. We are bombarded by media messages with contradicting ideas about fitness and nutrition. We need to keep our diet, relationships, and stress in check. It's time to get the right message and have the most fun. Join hosts Andrea Beeman, Lisa Lutan, and Michelle Fenighaus for Healthy View Radio. It's health and happiness in one show every Thursday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues, anxious, parenting challenges, no more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Hello, this is your host, Cheryl Jones, and uh, my guest, Jonathan Santlofer and I were just beginning to talk about uh, the loss of his wife, Joy, when we lost our connection. Um, yeah. So th- this is this is life, isn't it? But um, yes. yeah, uh, it, it feels a little um, metaphoric, I guess, to say the least. But could you pick that back up, yeah, Jonathan? Sure. I, I'm not quite sure where I was, but I'll just tell you very, very quickly again that, well, uh, we were, you know, uh, we met very young. We married very young. I always refer to our marriage as an ad hoc marriage because we didn't know what we were doing. But in the end, you know, we weathered a lot of time. We were married for 40 years. I have a great daughter. Um, 
And, uh, you know, my wife, Joy, uh, boy, I don't want to scare people, but she went for, into the hospital for outpatient, very simple repairing of a knee, knee tendon that was torn. And she did not make it. And, uh, but came home and then died. So it was a very traumatic. Um, I witnessed it. It uh, sent me um, into, I guess, a kind of, I mean, I, I, I mean, to describe the afternoon when that happened, which I do in my book, uh, it, it feels to me still very real, but almost like a movie that can play mm. in my head, which I don't want it to play in my head, believe me. But sometimes, you know, a, a siren or an ambulance will go by and it does start to play. Um, <clears throat> that was almost five years ago. So had you been speaking to me, Cheryl, just two or three years ago, I think I was quite a different person. I was not really able to talk about this, but uh, writing the book... Um, I'm not sure if cathartic would be the right w- word for it, but it re- it made me able to look at it and to really think about our lives together and, you know, what that all meant to me. So that's um, a little bit of the, the background and not the best part of the background, you know. But the, but the kind of I, – I always think when I'm reading uh, a memoir about a sudden loss – um, you know, my wife lived with a very uh, virulent form of cancer for ten years, mm-hmm. and yeah. so it was it was the slowest loss practically ever. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you, know, you know, I'll tell um, you something. I've been uh, my book's only been out a week, and I have been getting many, many emails and messages every day through my. Um, you know, through my website from people who have lost people and some lose people suddenly, some through illness. But, you know, it's still always somehow a shock because that person is gone. And, yes. you know, how you deal with that. And, you know, I, I, I have a friend who lost, uh, you know, a, a wife to a long illness and I said to him, well, you were lucky because you were able to talk about things. And he said, nope, we were not really able to talk about those things. So, so I don't, you know, is there a good way? No, but I think um, we all have to learn to deal with this in, in, a, in a variety of ways that enable us to go forward with our lives. You know, I think you've brought up a good point, though, because I would call myself lucky because we did talk about things. Uh, so I think that's more. a very key point. Um, I don't want to go to our our first real break without having uh-huh. you share some of the writing. Uh, could you, because it relates so much to how you started trying to process um, her death. Um, yeah. Could you share I, that I first just, piece sure. of writing? Yeah, well, this is an excerpt from my book, which is broken into chapters. And I should say that um, the way this book happened is I, is I kept notebooks, you know, regular high school composition notebooks, which I would write in at night, and I would just write down my day and what I was feeling, which is something I had never done in my whole life. I had never kept a journal or, or a diary, but I felt like so much of my life had suddenly come to come out of control that... I needed to keep track of it. In any case, um, ultimately, I started transcribing those notes, and the book emerged. And I'll read you a, ver- a short passage from a-, a chapter that I entitled "Guilt." My wife had died, and I could not save her. There it is, the truth, and no way around it. For months, I was infused with guilt in dreams. I'd see my, see my wife beckoning to me and do nothing. I continually asked myself, why did I not come into the living room earlier? Why didn't I insist we go to the hospital the moment her cheeks flushed and her legs started twitching? Because she'd called the doctor's office and they said it was nothing to worry about. 
I think about that now and shudder because they made a tragic mistake and this was not the only one. I had another new mantra. I should have done something. Is it that men are brought up with the idea that they can fix everything? An absurd notion, but one I had at least partially subscribed to until proven wrong. Or is it survivor guilt? Why her and not me? Perhaps a little of both. Guilt prevented me from enjoying a good meal or good times with friends. It took me months to go to a movie because movies were one of Joy's favorite things. When I finally went, I left midway through. I simply could not sit there. My guilt was unbearable. I bowed down to it and let it take charge. It didn't matter that my internist told me there was nothing I could have done. It didn't matter that another doctor friend said the same exact thing. I thought, but they don't know I was in the next room that if I had gone in 10 minutes earlier, I might have saved her. So that's uh, something that I felt for a long time. And I've, you know, I've spoken to other people and no matter what, I think there is some, some kind of weird guilt attached to loss that, that one has to work through. Um, yes. Maybe, well, you know, yeah, go on. I'm sorry. I, I, no, I was just going to say, I, th- um, you know, I don't believe in stages of grief. It's all sort of a mishmash. It's all thrown into I the same bowl. Totally <laughs> I agree with I, you. I think it's uh, it's come for me to aspects of grief, and mm-hmm. I feel as if um, guilt is a, a very important aspect of grief, and I've come to think of it as a way of avoiding the unpredictable. Well, like if you could have prevented this, maybe you can prevent it from happening to someone else you love. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. You can't you know, I think there's a scarier aspect to that, isn't isn't there? Yeah, yeah. When you said that, I thought to myself, it's kind of, you know, it's that sort of um, Joan Didion year of magical thinking, which is a wonderful book. But you know, that idea that somehow it isn't real and that you should be able to fix it, to and fix you know, it up. That, that's wow. that's an impossible thing, you know. Um, yes. And and no matter how many times I was told that, uh, it was really hard for that to get through to to me. Um, uh, I but, feel there's a little more to say about that, Jonathan, and it's time for yeah. a break. Can we come back to it okay. when we return? Sure, sure. And sure. listeners, you you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America, and you can find Jonathan Santlofer at jonathansantlofer.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-S-A-N-T-L-O-F-E-R.com. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent, inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. 
Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Jonathan Santlofer, author of The Widower's Notebook. And before the break, Jonathan, we were talking about guilt as an aspect of, of grief and how... Um, I would say near it's not universal universal but nearly so. Uh, yeah. just extremely yeah. common to to go to the place of what could I have done differently? Uh, how could I have prevented this? How could I have saved them? And right. sometimes that goes yeah. to ridiculous uh, degrees. Yeah. Yeah, I mean your mind just keeps playing things over and over. You know, you have this for me, I, I, I kind of had this film that was always going in my head, and I would try to change it, you know, and, and, and that's impossible. So, um, but I also wanted to, to respond to what you said about the stages of grief, because, um, you know, somebody gave me Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book, and I think she did do us a great service in talking about grief, but in terms of stages of grief, I would say I felt like I had jumped out of an airplane without a parachute, you know, things were just, I was just up and down and sad and crazy and couldn't sleep. And, you know, when somebody would talk to me and say something like, well, you must be in the anger stage, I would get so angry, I would want to hit them. So then, yeah, I knew I was in the anger stage. But no, I, I, uh, I don't think, I never really saw any organized pattern to grief at all. You know, I really didn't. Um, and I'll tell you, the other interesting thing about my book is that when I first wrote it, when I first transcribed it and wrote it, it was not in chronological order because I felt that people should experience what grief is like. But anyone who read it and my editors and my publisher who read it said, could you please put this in chronological order? Because it's making me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so I did. They you know, made you. Also, you know, I, yeah. So that, so that the book does read. It's funny because I did a big event the other night and we had a lot of questions and answers. And, and uh, one person said, you know, your book reads like a, like a novel, like a page turner. How did you do that? And I said, I don't know, but I have written, you know, six crime novels, so maybe it's part of my DNA. But, you know, I think if you're going to if you're going to put something down on a page or make a painting, you know, you you find yourself stepping back and saying, how am I going to make this good? How am I going to engage my my reader or my viewer? And I think that that's really important. You know, it's it's um, I remember thinking to myself, how can I be thinking about sentence structure when I'm writing something so personal and so devastating? But I also knew that that this book was important to me and that it had better be good. You know, that so I tried my best to do that whenever I could with with it. You, you brought up two things at the same time that fascinated ah. me in the book. Um, one is um, the fact that you wrote mysteries before this happened. Because, right. And the reason that caught my attention is that when my wife was ill, I had uh-huh. a deep fascination with, with uh, murder mysteries. 
<laughs> and I never had I never had before that, and I haven't read them too much since. And I couldn't figure it out for the longest time. I can, I did, did you figure it out? Because I think I can tell you why. I, I, I think I, under, I, I think I was playing around with her death, in a sense. Well, yes. Or, I also think you know. I think that crime fiction gives the reader um, not only a release, but in crime fiction we know that something bad is going to happen, and that it's going to, for the most part, work out well. You know, it's very <laughs> big, symbolic, yeah. good and evil, and, and good is going to triumph. And I think that crime fiction is very satisfying to us in that way, so that um, possibly for you it was both an escape, but also in your mind a way to, you know, let go of things and also to believe in the, uh, you know, the idea that uh, good things will prevail as much as you may not have believed that. Do you, do you know what I mean? I do. I do. That's a that's a very interesting new way to look at it. I had uh, looking back on it, had looked at it as since I knew she was going to die for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I w- There's a way I was trying to make that real for myself. I uh, see. Yeah. I yeah, think that I was also that. a part of it, but it it was fascinating. And then to imagine you having written that kind of fiction and then have this happen in your life really impacted you. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I couldn't write at all for a while, for a, quite a long time. And I had started a, um, a thriller crime novel that's half fact and half fiction before my wife died, which I put aside. And I only this last year was able to take it out and I've just finished it. But I didn't know if I would be able to write crime fiction again after living through in a certain way what I could say, you know, was the worst crime. I'm using crime in a, in a specific way here, but or a non-specific way of my life. You know, in other words, dealing with right. the reality of that. The worst, so, di- worst kind of disaster. Yeah, and Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, but, um, but I think, you know, I think it's, it was very natural for me. I realized at a certain point, because I am a writer, it was natural for me to be writing this down. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it, it did, it, you know, I think people who, you know, if you cook, if you garden, if you paint, if you, you know, that's what you go to in, in your worst. Absolutely. Because those, Absolutely. Right, they give you yeah. solace and they, yeah, go on. I'm sorry. And and then the other thing it brought up was um, the way that you used your drawing. I I had a similar antithesis to looking at photographs after uh-huh. my wife died. For me, it was I was insulted by them because they weren't her. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how else to I, put it. That's but. really interesting. That's uh-huh. so interesting. And yeah, and so you, then what you did as an artist was to almost take the photograph apart to draw it i don't you can describe this yeah. better than me, but well, i thought I, that was you know, such an interesting tool you had well you know i i couldn't look at any photographs cheryl i just they if i would come upon them you know sort of by happenstance they would shatter me i just couldn't take it and you know so i hid all the photographs of myself and my wife and I just I put them all away and then I found myself just within a few weeks in the middle of the night when I couldn't sleep making drawings of my wife and the three of us and or the two of us and you know because I was trained as an artist there's something very technical about that so I would be sitting in the middle of the night you know at my drawing table making drawings where you have to coordinate your mind and your eye and your hand. And, you know, I say to people, it's making marks on a page. You know, you can't make a drawing until you stop thinking about what you're drawing. In other words, you can't draw a nose unless you stop thinking it's a nose and it's just marks Mm -hmm. on a paper. So for me, it was a, a weird combination of being able to dissect images of my wife and recreate them on the page. Now I'm really going to get like sort of nutty here for a minute. But when I made the drawings, would make drawings of my wife, it was almost as if I was recreating her on the page and bringing me closer to her. 
And it was a way for me to stay close to her while not, you know, sitting in a corner with a photograph and crying. I could be at my table working and making drawings. And it, it, it felt like it just felt very natural to me. I ended up with over 80 drawings and sketches after two years. And we took so all of them in the book. So there will be a follow-up book that instead of oh, having... There are definitely I drawings in the book that are beautiful, but someday you'll you'll publish all 80 then? <laughs> um, I don't think so, to be honest. I think they're too personal. I mean, uh-huh. my sister-in-law asked for one that isn't in the book, which is her. Uh, she was my wife's big sister, Kathy, and I'm going to give her a drawing and my daughter wants a bunch of them, and some of my wife's friends want them. I'd rather give them away give and them have away. people own them, you know. Uh, my well, publisher chose 12, and that's enough for me, or 14, I think, you know. I, so. I've, been, I've been sitting here trying to bring back her name. I'm blocking it, but I, I interviewed an artist who uh, sat with people in hospice and drew... Uh-huh drew drawings of them, made a show uh-huh. of the drawings. Quite, quite beautiful. Wow. They had a I very similar a similar depth of re- of relatedness. I I don't know how else to describe it. Your drawings feel as if there's a relationship going on currently. I I, well, I think you huh. you said something about the movement in a drawing versus yeah. in a photograph. You know, well, photographs. You know, I love photographs, and I, but photographs are static. You know, they're a they're a second, um, instant moment that was taken. A drawing. You know, you do it over a period of time, and the the person who's doing it, your hand is visible. There's marks all over the page, um, and you know, so for me, a drawing is more alive than a photograph. And, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I do this weird thing where when somebody I've cared about who I don't even know, you know, like Philip Roth dies or somebody I met once, Anthony Bourdain at a dinner, you know, I do their picture and I put it on, I do a drawing and I put it online. And mm-hmm. um, it's something that, I don't know. It's something very natural to me and that I like doing. I don't think of it as a commemorative. It's very funny because when I did right. the Anthony Bourdain drawing, all of my friends were calling and saying, will you do this for me when I die? And I said, could you please not say that to me? Because I really <laughs> like to keep you around, you know? So the answer to that is no, because you're probably no. going to outlive me, you know? So <laughs> I'll do a drawing for you friends. now while you're living on. Let, yeah, let's hear I mean, a little yeah, bit more. That's... Let's hear a little bit more from the book, which I do think intersects with what we're talking about. You know, you kind of have to be your own expert. You came to that to those yeah. drawings by instinct, not by not by a plan. Yes, that's so, that's absolutely uh, true. So I had, not at all a plan. Not at all a plan. I just started just, doing them in the middle of one night, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it, it, yeah, I, I, I found them comforting to do. And so I kept doing them, you know? Um, so, you know, I think if it's all right to say, um, a lot of people have been saying to me that they find my book just when they're getting really sad that I'm, that the book's really funny. And that's something that has made me very happy to hear because my, one of the great things is that, I don't know why, but my wife never stopped thinking I was really funny. So I'm glad that's good in a relationship. The book is, you know, is <laughs> equally funny at times, you know, because I didn't set out to write a torturously sad book by any means, you know. So, but I think yeah. you meant for me to read that quick little piece from Why Men Can't Grieve in Public. Is that right? Yeah. The the it starts. Yeah. I cannot help myself. Yes. So just to quickly set the scene, I was at a dinner party and there were a bunch of people there and they were all trashing a book that a man had written about his wife who had died 10 years earlier. And they were really furious because they knew that he had remarried and he was happy. And I was sitting there the whole time thinking, what? People aren't allowed to be happy again. So, okay, this is from the middle of that chapter. I cannot help myself. 
it's time to offer up my, quote, credentials in the game of loss. I tell them I'm, I, I've not only read the book they're talking about, but that I lost my wife quite suddenly a little less than two years ago. The table goes quiet. I did not mean to exploit my loss to show that I know what I'm talking about or to prove that I'm right. Or did I? Now the group wants to hear what I have to say, all of them leaning forward, waiting. I take a sip of wine. I apologize for bringing the dinner party down, but the guests urge me on. As I explain that I'm writing about my wife's sudden death, it produces in me a mix of complex feelings. Am I in some twisted way playing the martyr, or is this genuinely who I have become, not only a widower, but a spokesperson for grieving men who are not allowed to openly grieve, yet condemned if they do not grieve enough? I point out that as a grieving man, I am constantly told to stop grieving, to get on with my life, to get laid, to find happiness, to remarry. I add that women are not only allowed to grieve openly, but are supposed to, though I've heard people criticize women who marry too soon after their husbands die. So I think maybe this cuts both ways. I say to them, you know, it's like get on with your life and be happy, but not too soon and not too happy. This produces a few nervous giggles, but no one disputes me because now I am the expert. So that's <laughs> a little a little bit of that. Uh, you know, we find ourselves being experts in things we never wanted to be, Cheryl. Isn't that true? No, that that is is so tr- true. I mean, I what I call that is is the been there factor. It, yeah. It's hard to describe. You're talking about something you've actually experienced. And, of course, we could go hours and hours on that conversation of what people think about grief versus what grief really is oh, and how yeah. You're, yeah. You, you dread a lo- you know, that you might have a loss your whole lifetime. But then when you have a loss, you're supposed to be over it in about five minutes. And, That's right. There are so many contradictions yeah. there. It's crazy. You know, I was having a drink with a very good friend. It was less than a year after my wife died. And he said, how are you feeling? And I said, not very great, but we don't have to talk about it. And he said, you mean you're not over it yet? And I just looked at him. You know, it was just like, really? You think that, you know, I was with someone for 40 years and I'm going to be fine in like nine months? Um, I know. think there. I think you so, have a chapter, and and we'll come back to this after this this break we're about to take. But I think you have a chapter called something like "Stupid Things That People Say." Uh, <laughs> it's called "Stupid Things Said By Smart People." Yeah, said yeah. by smart people. Exactly. Yeah. Let's come back to that right. after the break. Time for the okay, second break, great. and listeners, you can go to my website www.weatheringgrief.com to find Jonathan you can go to jonathansentlofer.com and we'll be back soon we're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go in addition to listening live you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts discover new talk show personalities add shows to your list of favorites and listen to all of our show archives on demand all from your ios amazon kindle or android device download it from the apple app store amazon or google play and get ready to tune in the voice america mobile app powered by aircast Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm here with Jonathan Santlofer, author of The Widower's Notebook. And, Jonathan, we were talking about stupid things said by smart people. Um, there's, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, there are whole books about that. And your book is a very, some of the stories you tell of 
of times with your friends are quite vivid and um, really capture that that alienation that comes when people are just in another universe than you're in as a grieving person. Yeah, you know, I debated. Believe me, I didn't put everything in that chapter, Cheryl. There are some worse things, sure. but um, sure. but I, you know, almost every review and every interview quotes things from that chapter because they find them so funny and so outrageous. To me, at the time, none of them were funny, you know. But they, oh. when I re re look at them, they are kind of hilarious because. But you know, everybody thinks. Everybody meet. I think everyone thinks they know what you want because they think they know what they would want, and it's just not true. I'm afraid, you know. Um, right. So yeah, so people say the craziest things to you, you know. So um, I, I feel yeah. I was I was relatively relatively protected from that because the people that really were in our our life had been in mm-hmm. in it with us for you know almost a decade and uh, yeah so they they, they kind of said the stupid yeah. stuff yes yeah. <laughs> they kind of said the stupid yeah. stuff at the beginning <laughs> you know and right, some people right. of course did not did not um stick right for right. sure well, yeah, there were lots of people who didn't stick uh which right. I, I was i was very i i i saw the humor in what you were saying but i didn't read it 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 was painful to read because um, that experience of having people not show up when you're in such an extremity oh, of, yeah. of of inability to think or ask for things or it just it must have been so yeah. painful. Well, you know that that was the most painful. The people who sort of disappeared. I mean, my message, if 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 I have a message to anyone, it's show up. You know, you don't you don't have to say anything. Just be there. Just show up. You know. Stop by, call, you know, see how some, you know, just, it, you don't have, you know, every, we're all so awkward about it, but just showing up is so important, you know? Um, I, I, I'm not sure I was the best at that in, before in my life, but I've, I've learned that that is really what you need to do, you know, for your friends and family and people you care about. You, you just have to show up in some way. Uh, and, and, that there, and there's such really a, important. It, yeah. It's such a desert that even like getting a text that says, I'm thinking about you or a text that says, I don't, I'm not sure what to say, but I love you. Right. That's right. It's like water in the desert, isn't it? Oh my God. Yes. It's so important. You know, I mean, the thing that, the things that really kind of hurt me and crushed me were the people who literally disappeared. Friends who had been friends for decades who simply Mm -hmm disappeared. I mean, I just, I was flabbergasted, you know, by that. And then the other, but on the good side, there were other people who were not, had not been great friends who became unbelievably supportive, wonderful, wonderful friends, you know? So I think we, you know, you know, there's a, I dare I say it, there's a kind of yin and yang, you know, with somehow that, that, that happens. Um, you know, absolutely I, this is off topic. But I got an email today through my website. A woman wrote me this long, beautiful email, and she said she's been married for 36 years. She had just finished my book 10 minutes ago and and wanted to write me because one of the things she had been fearing, even though she and her husband were both perfectly well, was that losing her husband or one of them, you know, dying, and that she felt like the book maybe helped her prepare for that. And I was just I was flabbergasted that she wrote this to me. So I, I wrote back to her, and we're, we're now having a little email conversation on uh-huh. and off the last couple of days that's been amazing. you know. Um, and other people have said what we're just talking about, which is one of the things they've taken away is that you simply have to show up. You know, no matter how awkward you feel or if you don't know what to say, as you just said, then you just say, I don't know what to say. I'm really sorry. You know, I love you. Or what can I do? Or, you know, can yeah. I go shopping for you? Or do you want to go out to eat? Or something like that. More you know? specific, the better, huh? <laughs> well, Where's your shopping yeah, list? 
Yeah, I, I yeah. yeah. You know how, how they they say those things. You know, they they call a Hollywood invitation, which means you're not really being invited. They when people right. will say, "Yeah, we have to get together sometime," but you know that doesn't really do it. If somebody calls right. you or texts you or emails you and says, "Come over tomorrow night," or "What are you doing now?" That's what you need. You know, that's even you if need. you refuse so, it, it matters, doesn't it? Absolutely. Even if you say I'm not up for it, it still matters that 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 happened. I, I, Mm -hmm. you got me thinking about something that's related, um, which is kind of the the sense of threat you imagined couples were feeling uh, Uh, when they when they hung out with you as a third. I hadn't thought about it quite that way. Um, but you know, I, but I, I saw never, what you yeah. were talking about. Well, you know, I never thought about it. And um, I had spent most of my life, my adult life, as a couple. So I didn't think about it at all. But, you know, there were people, there were couples who disappeared. Um, my father died when I was fairly young. And my mother experienced it. Um, and we've talked about it. My mother is still around and going strong. Um, but she talked about how couples really sort of deserted her. Now, that is not true of all of my couple friends. I have, you know, a couple of them. A couple of the couples have been fantastic. But mm-hmm. I, I, some of them really just, I don't know, they couldn't deal with me as a single man. I don't know what that's about. Um, a woman friend of mine says that when her husband died very unexpectedly many years ago and she was quite young, that she was dropped by a lot of couples and she was, uh, you know, so hurt by it. Um, I, I don't know if, if maybe it threatens the idea of coupledom or people don't know what to do with you or, um, you know, whenever I'm Or it brings up the possibility of, of their own loss. You know, maybe that's it. You know, I hadn't thought about that. I, I think you may, you might be right. Maybe it is. Maybe it, it exposes our vulnerability, you know, um, and that is something people don't want to think about. And, you know, I say to people, listen, you know, believe me, I don't want to come over and cry and talk about this. I just want to be with people, you know, and, um, uh, and I think that's all you want. At least that's all I, for me. That's what I wanted, you know. Uh, so and, and probably someone to acknowledge that it had happened. I imagine. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> you know, there were, you may you know, not need to talk there, about it or cry about it all night, but neither do you want it ignored. No, you know, I, I, I think I got that sh- from your book. Yeah. I'm still in shock that a friend, um, part of a couple who was basically, you know, as much joy's friend as my friend literally never said one word to me. Never did not express their feelings of loss, never called me. And this was a friend for decades who I have not heard from. Now, either they, this person cannot face the loss at all, but, you know, I mean, come on. You know, uh, I don't know what to say about that, you know. Uh, I mean, I hope I've never been that bad, you know, to anybody in my life, but <laughs> I, I surely would not do that to anyone now. I'll tell you that. Um, uh, experience is the only true teacher, I guess, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, some people are naturally <laughs> but hopefully, better at it hopefully, than others. Hopefully, yes. I, I have noticed, though, that people who are the best at it have experienced it themselves. But yes, it can that, be it can be learned, you know. Empathy can be that kind of empathy can be learned. Um, there are oh, a couple I, of real good books about that, actually. I agree with you. I agree with you. You know, I was I read a lot of different people's grief memoirs. Um, one of the things I I note in my book is uh, I read this terribly sad essay by Ralph Waldo Emerson when his son died, and at the end of it, he says, "Grief has taught me nothing." And, you know, I think he wrote his essay too soon. He wrote it very soon after his son's death. And I think grief does teach you things. I mean, I, I think it, te- it opens you up. It, it teaches I, you I liked to- that, little, um, that little excerpt from your book. It'd uh, be fine for you to read the whole thing if you like. Um, because 
I, I wondered about that too, how you could get to, um, you know, how you could really experience and dive into your grief and then feel as if nothing had changed. That was quite striking. Well, yeah, I, I don't, you know, I guess in many ways, um, you know, particularly if I think if, if the grief is, if the loss is very sudden um, and, you know, quite know what to do with that, you know, you are thrown for such a loop that you think it cannot teach you anything. And, and you know, you don't want it to teach you anything. But <laughs> for sure. Um, I think that I have learned from grief, you know, I've learned that I can survive it. I've learned that, you know, I can let the loss and pain in that I don't have to wear a mask of, of, you know, a a total mask of not showing my feelings that I can confront my denial that I, I don't know, I just, I think you do learn, you know, and, and I think well, it's, of course, you're speaking yeah. to the choir, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And if we yeah. had another, uh, if we had another hour, what I would be um, introducing is just your relationship with your daughter and how that evolved and changed. Uh, That's yeah. a very good example of the kind of changes that um, that really get pro- sometimes. I won't say always, but often kind of instigated by these real experiences. Well, I'll tell you, say very, very quickly, I'll just tell you that very soon after my wife died, a friend, a therapist friend said to me, you have to think about something good that will come out of this. And at the time, I could not think of anything. But in fact, the good thing that's come out of it is that my daughter and I are super close. We were always close, but now we are really, really close. And, and you know, we've taken trips together by ourselves. Um, and it's really been amazing, you know. And I, I uh, so that is a great thing that came out of this. Um, and I'm certainly very happy about that. Both can be true at the same time. <laughs> Grief yeah, stinks, yeah, and what comes yeah. out of it can be really, really good. <laughs> well, I, you know, I really appreciate a, this hour. I we're we're gonna have to we're gonna have to close off, but I could definitely spend at least another couple of hours talking about your book, and I I hope people go read it. It's a wonderful book. So thank you very thank much, you so Jonathan. Much. Thank you, Cheryl. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Uh, and and. You know, you listeners out there, I do recommend the book very highly, and you can reach Jonathan and see where to get the book at jonathansantlofer.com, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-S-A-N-T-L-O-F-E-R.com. Next week, I'll have Martin Keek, author of As Much Time As It Takes, a a brief exploration of what it takes to support someone in grief. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.